Hello and welcome to Lecture 7A of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore and this discussion will look at the one-on-one -on -one kind of discussions or presentations. And most of us throughout our professional lives will have countless one-on-one -on -one discussions, often with important people, people who have power and influence over things that are important to us. And although there are meetings that are like the iconic job interview, which are quite symbolic of all of this and what we're trying to achieve, there are many other kinds of important one-on-one -on -one meetings that generally have a big impact on our professional lives and our journey. These are the interactions where we want to have some influence, where we're presenting our ideas, ourselves, and in some way wanting to influence what other people think or do. Now, there are some key differences when we're presenting something in a one-on-one -on -one engagement. And the first is that it really is a true dialogue. And it should be thought of as a true dialogue. Unlike group discussions or presenting to a crowd or a large number of people, when we're presenting something to a single person, it is a real discussion and should be viewed as that and should work like that. So in other ways, it might seem to be other things, a job interview or a presentation, but mechanically, we should treat the interaction as a discussion. This means that despite us probably having a lot to say, we need to not only respect the other half of the interaction, but to leverage it. To help us create the right environment, the right alignment with that other person that gives us the best opportunity to have the influence we're looking for. So often this means that we might need to listen as much as we talk. We might need to ask, give the other person an opportunity to respond, to express, to present their own ideas, to have a voice, to participate in the interaction. With a one-on-one -on -one engagement, we have an opportunity to pursue a true alignment between their position and our position. And usually this is part of our primary goal. The exact nature of what that alignment will look like will depend on the circumstances, the goals, the situation. But our first step is to try to understand what the difference is between their perspective and ours. And we're looking for a confirmed alignment. This is a shared understanding of each other person's perspective, but making sure that we both know that we've removed the doubt and uncertainty. It's the removal of the assumption. So asking questions is a powerful alignment trigger and mechanism. And this might mean even in the beginning, even before we've embarked upon our discussion and our presentation, we let them talk a bit about themselves, perhaps talk about their feelings, find out what their perspective is about whatever it is that we're talking about. Learn about their ideas. Let them, encourage them to educate us, empower them. The more power we give to that person that we're interacting with, the more likely that they will feel that they can do something for us. The less they're likely to be defensive, evasive, or concerned about where we might lead them. If they feel powerful, they're more likely to be open and comfortable about what we want to express. So asking for someone to simply listen to us right off the beginning of the conversation, this is asking a burden of them. This is a demand. This is placing a tax on their patience. If we come in blurting things out and expecting them to simply listen. But if we begin by asking someone to talk a bit about what matters to them within the context of what we want to discuss by asking them to share first what we give them is an opportunity we give them a privilege we give them a pleasure that they enjoy talking about themselves or their own perspective then when we ask them to listen to us after that that request becomes an obligation it becomes a debt a duty it becomes a reciprocation by them of a respect that we've already shown them. Now, during a one-on-one -on -one discussion, as we talk and say things, and as does the other person, each of us will be thinking of what we're going to say next. And whilst the other person is speaking, the more that our mind is preoccupied with what we want to say next, the less we're focused on what they're saying right now. And the same thing happens in the reverse. So often there's an advantage 
when we detect the other person's desire to interject, that we pause our delivery and allow that, encourage that. Let them get those thoughts off their chest, out of their mind, allow them to stop thinking about that thing that they wanted to say, frees up their mind and their concentration to once again resume absorbing what we want to say. If we continue to barrel through and push our ideas forward, we may find that very little of it actually is even noticed because their mind is simply preoccupied with what they are wanting to say and are merely hoping for an opening. Let's give them the opening, let them clear that and move forward. Sharing each other's perspectives means sharing the subjectivity. We want to understand another person's subjectivity in whatever the topic is that we're discussing. We want to understand what filters that they're using. What might their bias be and the reasons for it? The background of any preconceived ideas. This can be as simple as understanding what they think about something, but more so why they think that. Understanding things behind the scenes can help us understand why a person has a particular thought. What has already influenced them will guide us to understanding how we can introduce our influence because usually that's our objective in this conversation. So we're often wanting our influence to take effect but it's competing with other influences that might be in direct conflict. Understanding those influences will help us chart a path forward. This might also mean that occasionally we need to share a similar level of detail to help the other person honestly understand where we're coming from and what we want to achieve with this discussion. This is even more important if our perspective and theirs might appear to be even further apart. We've all been in those meetings or those discussions with someone where we went in thinking that what we needed was to convince them of a particular point of view. But after a few moments in the discussions, perhaps a few questions, we came to realise that actually they might have already had a similar point of view. And the difference between their views or their actions and what we want is perhaps not what we assumed it to be. So by finding the gaps between their perspective and ours, by looking for ways to create an alignment, we're not just allowing their assumptions or ours to guide our starting position and create an argument. So we want to understand what they want from this discussion. Anyone joining us in a one-on-one -on -one discussion, it's an investment of time on their part. It's an investment of effort. We might have asked for the meeting, and that meeting might be about us or about ideas, but it's not all about us. That other person has a reason for saying yes. They have a reason for being there and committing the time and effort to participating. Now, that could be because of any care or respect that they have for us and their willingness to help us, but it could also be that there is something that they're hoping to get for themselves, some benefit in their minds that is worth us looking for and trying to understand. It could be the reason for them to participate in the discussion. And if they don't find any evidence of it, they may want to end or not be influenced by this discussion, regardless of what we want. But we also need to be clear on what it is that we want. We need to be able to have a plan for what our purpose is, like any form of communication that we've already discussed. We plan what we want to achieve, and we plan what's going to help us, what other tools, what other information, what other elements to this process might help us get to our end goal. What's going to help us create an aligned understanding with that other person? But we also not just plan the topic, but we plan the right timing of when we want to have that interaction. Plan the right situation to have it in, even planning the right location. Because we want to make it as suitable or as conducive as we can to the outcomes we're looking for. Some things are best not discussed standing in the corridor by the water cooler. Equally, some things really shouldn't be discussed in the elevator ride downstairs, even though that might be an opportunity because you've caught that person alone in the lift, but you've probably only got a few seconds. So we choose the moment, choose the place, choose the situation. Choosing the place is also potentially a very powerful factor because it influences their sense and awareness of power. Do we try to speak to them in their domain or in ours? If we speak to them in their environment, they will feel a sense of comfort and power because they're in their domain. 
their space, wherever they feel powerful. Conversely, if we do it in our controlled space, they will feel more vulnerable. They may feel more open. They may be less likely to use their power, but they might be more defensive if they need that power. Or do we choose a neutral place, something that's more private or more open? We need to make conscious decisions if the outcome of this discussion is important. Once we've gotten well into our discussion, we usually want to focus on the intellectual content. We want to maintain our calm. We might have strong feelings about whatever it is we're talking about, but those should generally be secondary. The emotions might be relevant to the reasons for whatever perspective we have, and they might be part of what we feel or why we feel a certain way, but they're secondary because we don't want them to be the primary thing that the other person is reacting to. The emotional element is supporting information to support the intellectual perspective or the intellectual understanding that is most important to the influence that we want to get. Getting another person excited or feeling about something is usually temporary, whereas the influence we want is usually intellectual. If we lead with emotion, then likely what we will get back is emotion. And if we're sharing an emotional discussion, we're less likely to be aligned on the intellectual influence that we're going to get from it. So generally, we want to be calm, be the calm, rational, controlled person that we want the other person to be in that same moment. We want them to reciprocate our disposition so that we can allow their logic to be influenced by what we're saying. So we obviously need to be aware of potential emotional triggers in whatever we are presenting, things that the other person may react to. And if we do need to discuss things that are emotionally charged, we might introduce them slowly, gently and respectfully if we believe the other person is likely to have an emotional reaction to it. So our ability to know what to do and what to say in any moment comes back to our need to ask questions. Yes, we're here to express something, to explain something, to say something. But our questions are the most effective way for us to know whether or not it's working and where to go next with this interaction. We don't want uncertainties to remain. So questions are a great way for us to confirm and resolve exactly what everybody believes in the moment. They're also a good way to have the other person feel engaged, feel empowered, feel purposeful and feel relevant, feel that they are contributing to this discussion. We don't want them to feel simply that they have been subjected to our discussion, where they have to grapple with it and protect themselves from it in some way. We want them to feel that they are part of it, that they are contributing to it, and that the influence and the decision-making that occurs at the end, even the ones that occur in their own mind, is something that they've been a participant of along the way. So they're not challenged with the question of, do I do what this other person says? They're simply saying, well, do I agree with this? And I've led myself here, so I'm more likely to agree with it. On a more practical level, we would be able to do things in a one-on-one -on -one that might be easier than with a group. We might avoid unnecessary interruptions. We might make a point of silencing our own phone. And even if the other person doesn't do the same, they'll at least know that we've considered that this is important enough not to allow us to be interrupted. We might have a mental checklist of things that we want to cover and things that we want to go through, but we need to be flexible with that based on what we learn from the conversation that we are going through. We don't have to tick every box in that one meeting. We'll often have the opportunity to have a separate meeting or a separate interaction with this person at a later time. We don't always need to be too greedy with the amount of progress or the amount of success that we have in any one given discussion. Sometimes one of the best outcomes we can get from a discussion is that it creates an opening for the next discussion. We might also want to be honest about our objectives. If we want to impress the other person, it can sometimes be better to simply express that rather than eagerly try to impress them in an underhanded way. Many people will find such honesty in expressing our purpose a little bit disarming and sometimes even appealing. It puts them in a position of knowledge and power and understanding. People are often more reluctant to allow us to influence them if they think we are trying to be sneaky or to sneak up on them with our point. 
being open and honest about it is a quicker way to get an open understanding. We might not get the influence we need, but at least we haven't damaged our respect from that person along the way. But at a practical level, if we hide our intentions in carefully phrased words that don't quite reveal the whole truth, what that triggers in the other person is a desire to search for the truth, to search for our true intentions. We've done the same thing when others have been a little bit sneaky towards us, when they've talked in circles or they've been circumspect. What are we doing? Our mind is constantly searching for what's the real purpose here? What's their intent? What's their angle? But if it's something that's given up front, then the listener can devote their mind to understanding what they want to do about that clear purpose. When it comes to body language, there's a lot that's already been said elsewhere, but a few things can make a difference in a one-on-one. First of all, we want to physically engage with the conversation, so we want to face the person. Usually this means with our shoulders. Preferably we lean forward rather than leaning back. That's a signal of engagement. Look somebody in the face, look at them between the eyes, but not staring at the eyes. We want to have our arms and hands open. We want to avoid fidgeting and uncontrolled movement. We want to stay composed and we try not to overreact to shifts and changes and revelations within the conversation. Keep our movements steady. Thinking slow and steady can help our body language remain slow and steady. And let us be more aware of the body language of the other person, whether or not they engaged. If a person physically disengages, when they lean back, use their arms as a barrier, start to fidget, that might be when we ask questions. Get them to express, get them to share. They will then have to re-engage their brain and re-engage with the conversation in order to do so. Once they're re-engaged, then we can go back to sharing what we need to share. So we don't always need to rush in too fast and get everything blurted out. Keep in mind the three stages of understanding. Concept, context, and content. Often we'll already have a conceptual alignment, but it'll be really important to make sure that we have a contextual alignment before we get into the details. If it becomes a debate or an argument, remember that we're usually not there to win an argument. We're there to win an outcome. So be careful which arguments you choose to do battle with and which ones are worth winning and which ones are not. If we get caught, and we're not too sure what to say next, we're unclear about where we should go next, we can take a moment, a brief pause, thinking time, both for us and for them. Consider your words carefully, take it patiently, show your patience to encourage their patience. Find the right words. It's often better to stop and think for a moment and choose the right words than to blurt out something that you feel might half do the job. Usually, the most valuable outcome we can have from any one-to-one interaction is the continued or increased respect that they have for us. Because usually, the degree of influence that we can or ever will get from that person in a one-to-one engagement will be aligned with the degree of respect that they have for us. This is the end of Lecture 7A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 7B of MGI 521 Professional Communications. This is Brenton Birchmore and this discussion will look at some of the specifics of public speaking or speaking to crowds and large groups. It's often talked about that public speaking is not everyone's pleasant pastime, but it needn't be as challenging as it might appear. There are some simple things that we need to keep in mind. Many of them are obvious, but some of them are less so. The first is that like everything else that we do in communications, it begins with a plan. The more we plan for any public speaking event, the better the chances we have of that event going well. Even if it doesn't go exactly as we had planned, the planning that we did do prepares our minds for the millions of momentary individual decisions that we will have to make during the presentation, second by second, in particular of deciding what do we say next. Our planning process, thinking about it in advance, helps us be prepared for the unexpected decisions we have to make in the moment. So simply having a well-thought-out plan would, for example, make it much easier for us to effectively ad-lib in the moment if we choose to. But when we're planning for a public speaking event, it's more of a dual purpose. 
Generally, there is the message that we want to get across, but there's also the meeting of the audience's expectations. Unlike in a small, intimate group, where there's typically more interactive elements, it's often us trying to create influence amongst that small audience. In a public speaking environment, we have such a broader audience with a wider range of expectations that we often need to be more general in how we approach this purpose. Our goals are often less important or more general in nature because one of our goals will need to be more aligned with meeting the goals of the audience. This is their reason for being there, their reasons for listening. So we need to try to understand what those reasons would be, including understanding the context of the environment in which we are giving the presentation. If we're the only ones presenting to this crowd in this moment, then why have they come and sat here just to listen to us? If not, if it's a multi-presentation environment, what is the purpose or the context of the entire event? What are the other presenters delivering? How might that influence the expectations of our audience and what they might therefore expect from us? Sometimes in large-scale public speaking, it's quite difficult to meet the goals of our audience. And generally, our goal might be to deliver just enough value to the audience in general that they'll consider what we have said sometime later when they come across it. So we want to make sure that they have something of value to take away with them that's still in their minds and still being thought about later. We want them to value the experience of the few minutes that they spent listening to us. But we want them to want more, to make some effort, to be motivated to take some steps later, to find out more, to explore more, or to consider whatever it was that we had covered. So we want to try and know a little bit about the audience and what it is that drives their investment to be present and to be attentive. We want to make sure that what we're covering is related to that context. As a presenter in a large public speaking environment, there is usually a little less margin for error from us. We are allowed to be human, but we're expected to be a competent and professional version of whatever it is we're there to represent. But interestingly, even someone with a mere average capability in public speaking is still going to perform a lot better than other versions or other examples of public speakers that our audience might have encountered before. The average performance level is actually fairly modest. Another interesting fact with this is that most people who give a public speaking presentation and who then feel that perhaps they didn't do so well, well, most of the audience will hold the view that that presenter, despite whatever failings that they thought they had, the audience will feel that that presenter did a better job than they themselves could have done if they were the one up on stage. So even when we don't think we've done a terrific job as a presenter, most of the audience will usually believe that we did a better job than they could have done. But even if we don't think we're doing a great job, it's important not to focus on that. Show confidence. Fake the confidence if we need to. We don't want to self-depreciate. We want to maintain a positive mental attitude. Expect that things are going well. Focus on where it is going well. And when it doesn't, we will handle it better. And sometimes that can be as simple as keeping a smile on our face when something does go awry. But another aspect of meeting the audience's expectations is to manage those expectations. Help define things for them up front. Talk about what we're going to discuss. Tell them our agenda. Tell them our purpose. Tell them what to expect over the next few minutes. Help set their expectations so that at the end of it, once we've done those things and we've delivered on the requirements that we set out, we've met their expectations because we've done what we said we were going to do. This will create a baseline level of satisfaction that the audience is not going to disagree with. Because in most public speaking environments, it's not about the details. It's usually more about the concepts, the higher ideals, the bigger pictures. It's about the potential of the meaning behind what we're discussing that could be derived from those big ideas and embraced contextually or specifically within the minds of each member of the audience. They will find how it means specifically to them. 
they will look for the connections to their world, their thoughts. So even when we are talking about specifics or something historical, often for the audience, they're thinking about it from their perspective. What does it mean to them? They're extrapolating those facts and those details and translating that, thinking about how that might apply to them in the future rather than what happened to somebody else in the past. They're looking for what lessons can be derived from that example or from that content that's being presented. So often those details are less important than how they are able to trigger the imagination of our audience. So we'll often want to focus on the outcomes and the consequences of whatever concepts we're talking about because that's generally where the audience will be thinking about or what they will be focusing on. And the less we need to focus on facts, the less we need to be the expert on those facts. Because it can be damaging to the integrity and believability of our presentation if we try to work with facts, but we get them a little bit wrong. If we try to present truth, but the audience doubts that truth, perhaps because they know better or more than we do, then they will often doubt everything else we say, even those other things that we might have said that were absolutely correct. For most public speaking engagements, we don't usually want it to be a complicated process of educating the audience. If they think they already know what we're trying to educate them, then they're inclined to switch off mentally and not engage with what's next. Or they might believe that that information isn't relevant to them or it's not what they're here for. So usually we want our talk to be an inspiration to them, something that ignites and triggers their thinking about it triggers their extrapolation further and beyond whatever it is that we are talking about specifically. This might mean that we need to come across as being more capable than clever, more inquisitive than knowledgeable. We might be spontaneously creating those questions in their mind by asking them, by showing our curiosity and sharing it with them to inspire their questions within their own minds. Now, like any important speaking event, there are practical steps that we will need to keep in mind. We'll need to do our best to make sure that the environment that we're presenting in is working, make sure the equipment is working, that everything is prepared, that everything is tested. Check out the room, check out the equipment, make sure it's compatible with whatever it is that we need. The aids, the tools that we are relying upon, keep them simple so that they can work in different environments. We'll obviously need to dress appropriately, and use the same kind of body language that we might use in a smaller internet group, but with a wider audience, we might need to allow our eyes to roam a little further and a little more frequently. We keep our bodily position facing our audience more broadly. We keep our arms open to show our vulnerability and inviting them to believe us. We might have a little bit of physical movement that shows that we're creating energy, but we don't want to overdo it. But more so than with intimate small groups, we might also want to inject more passion. We might want to trigger a degree of emotional interest, a response to the clear statements that we're making with an emotional countenance. Show the audience our emotional investment in what it is we're talking about and help them feel a degree of inspiration for their own emotional response. We want to motivate them to think about it encourage them to think about it because we're hoping and wanting that after the event they'll still be thinking about it and may find it useful to come up with new ideas themselves but whilst we might have a bit of passion and inject a bit of energy we don't want that to be negative we don't want to be critical of others usually at all we don't want to make jokes at the expense of others jokes if we use them should only be at our expense or neutral and even then, not very serious. The structure of our message is likely to have three major punches through that. One at the very beginning, to grab their attention. One partway through that defines the most important part of our message that we want to pass on. And the third at the end that will motivate them to continue thinking about it after the presentation has stopped. Punches in a presentation can be things like startling and unexpected facts, revelations, amazing things, surprising things, or amazing questions. 
But we can also start with story. Humans are powerful storytellers, and we relate to others and other situations through story. And it can be very effective to start off our presentation with a brief story that relates us to the normal world that they then also relate to. Alternatively, we might start with a startling revelation, a fact or an info piece that really does prompt curiosity and interest, a wow factor that says, wow, I really didn't know that. Either a story or a startling revelation is a great way to pique their interest because the audience will then be wanting to know how that makes sense with everything else that you're about to say. If we're covering a particularly lengthy or complicated topic in our presentation, we might need to help ourselves keep a clear mind before we begin. We don't want to be distracted by anything else. We'll do our preparation, we'll do our rehearsals, but we might try not to leave anything important or unattended in the moments or the, even the hours leading up to any important public speaking event. Things that are going to linger in our subconscious and pop up in our heads, unexpected and unannounced, those are the things we should avoid. So we don't deal with intense, high-gravity issues just leading up to our presentation if we can avoid it. Plan to do nothing else just prior to that if possible, or at least nothing significant or nothing too mentally complex. Because if we're still in the midst of our presentation up on stage, some part of our subconscious will probably still be working on that other problem that we thought about an hour before. We want to be 100% in the moment on the stage. And one of the best ways to do that is to limit the possibility of us being subconsciously distracted by something else that is also important to us. This is where we can use pauses effectively to gather our thoughts in any point that we get a little bit lost, a little bit distracted, we're a little bit unsure of exactly what to say next. We pause, even if it's a lengthy pause, let it linger. Move around a little bit on the stage if necessary. Gather your thoughts. If you need even more time, ask them a question, a theoretical question, a hypothetical question. Not one that you're expecting them to speak up or raise their hand, but just something for them to imagine for a few moments while you collect your thoughts on what you're going to say next. And if we're using visual aids, slides or other presentation cues, we need to remember that those are there to support us. They're there to support our message. They are not the message. We are. We are the presenter. So we need to be the star on stage. We are the human with which the audience members will engage with. We are the ones that they will believe. We are the ones that will inspire them. We are the ones that will lead them. And we are the ones that will be the reason why they do anything else in the future. Sometimes, though, after a public speaking occasion, we might have cause to be mingling with our audience afterwards. After the event, after the stage components are done, we might be mixing with others, perhaps during a lunch break or somewhere afterwards. Our presentation hasn't quite finished in their minds. In our mind, it has. We're done. We've got to the last slide. We've stepped off stage. We've unplugged our microphone. But in their minds, it's still replaying in their head. So we have a continued opportunity to influence their thoughts, influence the minds of individuals or small groups. So if we walk up and talk to people, we have a further continuing dialogue in their mind that we can perhaps speak to and engage in discussions, ask them questions. We don't need to start with talking about our presentation. We might ask them about some other presentation or something else unrelated. If they've got thoughts about what we said, they will very quickly come back to it and they will ask us the questions simply because we've made it okay to be part of a conversation with them. But we don't just chat with people outside of that presentation. We want to connect with them. We want to become more than simply the public speaker who's had something to say. We become a representative. We become a real person who represents the views and ideas that we've presented to that group. We become a source of inspiration, of motivation, and of influence on their lives and their decisions. This is the end of Lecture 7b. Hello and welcome to Lecture 7c of MGI 521 Professional Communications. 
This is Brenton Birchmore. We are going to have a quick discussion about live video presenting, that is, webinars, and those moments where you're broadcasting live on the internet and you have an audience of people who are hoping to enjoy what you have to say. Now, going digital with your presentation is one thing, but going live is something else altogether. We don't have any power to edit things before the audience sees it. There's no repeats, there's no do-overs. If you're live, everything happens in the moment. So we need to make sure that we focus on the things that we can control, because there are obviously things that we can't. One of the first and obvious things is our preparation. We are not our content. We are the presenter. We are the representative of the content. So we must know it. We have to own it. And we're not simply a talking head on a video. We are a real and complete person. So by knowing our content, we merge the persona of who and what we are with the relevance of that content. The more we know it, the more deeply we know and understand what we're presenting, the more we are part of that knowledge and that content, rather than simply being the current presenter of something that's disassociated from us. We need to know our content well enough that we can talk about it, not merely present it or read it. Now, when we're talking about content creation for live webinars, it follows the same presentation guidelines that you would have for any other presentation. It needs the same story, the same flow, the same message. It's still following the vectors of change. But we need to also still be clear on its purpose. And we adjust all of the different parameters that we can control in order to focus on that purpose. And once we've created our content, we've created our slides, or we've created our message, we review this to see how well it is working towards that purpose. Now, more than any other kind of presentation, we're going to rely upon technology, equipment. So we want to check the tech. We want to test everything. We want to know what works, how it works. We want as much as possible to work with familiar technology. We don't want to be stuck with something that we've just taken out of the box and we hope it works the way it's told us it would. And we also need a plan B. What happens if an important piece of tech fails? What's our backup plan? And then we'll test that. Have spares, have alternatives, have something up your sleeve because when you're in the moment and people are live and connected, you want to make sure that you can very quickly fix something and keep going. This raises questions about important technology like the microphone. We typically want to use a good quality microphone. Now, when I say good quality, usually somewhere between $50 to $100 is a good quality microphone that's well and truly enough for most webinars. But we need to know the difference between the way the microphones pick up audio. Know about the polar patterns of what kind of microphones pick up sound from what areas. A dynamic microphone, what we're used to seeing on stage and held in their hand by a singer, has a fairly narrow range of where that microphone will pick up its audio. So if we're giving a webinar, we need to make sure we stay within that audio range of where it's going to pick up. If we're using a condenser microphone, which is another popular choice for voice, we need to know exactly how it's positioned. Positioned in the right place, have it in the right area, and make sure that if you are on video as well, as much as possible, the microphone should not be obscuring the view of your face. When it comes to camera, we typically want a higher resolution camera, 1080p for example. But still, most webcams will do the job effectively. But you're looking at a slightly higher quality webcam for 1080. Smaller resolutions can still do the job, but usually you don't want to use the cheapest one you can find. And often you might want to use an external one rather than the camera that comes included with whatever laptop or device you're using. Also make sure the lens is clean. Make sure that the autofocus is working and it has you focused in frame. And we want it typically straight in front of us, angled to looking at us directly ahead. This often means mounting the external camera on the top of the video screen in front of us, for example. But make sure that's not too high. You don't want to be looking either up nor down at the camera. You want as much as possible to be looking straight ahead. The choice of headphones should they be small in-ear phones or should they be the big bulky and obvious ones? That's a decision we need to make deliberately. But don't use your speakers. We're at risk of getting feedback and echo, especially if we have other team members or co-presenters that we might have to listen to during the webinar. Lighting, 
be familiar with the three-point lighting system. You don't need to use that, but your lighting should generally be front-on. A spread light is usually enough. You can also have round lights if you have a small camera device, like a phone or some other simpler thing, and soft LED lights are usually preferred. But do you want a warm colour or cool colour? It's a choice you need to make. Try not to use side-on lighting, because this creates shadows across your face. You generally don't want unbalanced light. You want to have either light directly in front or two lights that help remove the shadows. Beware also if you're wearing glasses that the position of the light doesn't reflect off the glasses directly to the camera. When it comes to the technology, be familiar with what your software can and cannot do. Know what the audio options are. Does it have noise filters? Does it try to automatically adjust the level? Do you need to switch those settings off? These are things you can only determine with a test run. In your physical environment, you need to make a decision about what your background should be. Should it be bland and uninteresting? Or should it be charactered and reveal things about you or your environment? If you're doing something in a studio or in an office environment, that might be very different from doing it in a home or home studio environment. Be aware that the eyes of the audience and their mind will wander to think about what's in your background. Often you don't want them pondering what's in your book collection on the bookshelf behind you. Also be wary of artificial backgrounds, virtual or digital backgrounds, because they can create the uncanny valley effect that kind of looks half natural but not really and can also be distracting. Generally, what we're talking about here assumes that you will be on video during the webinar in some way. This is a default that we should be aiming for. Yes, we can have audio-only webinars, but usually the addition of the camera on the presenter will add an irreplaceable value to the ability to get the message across. This gives you another way to inject your energy into the presentation. But what energy you do put in, you need to maintain it. It should be consistent throughout. The energy you give and how that's detected by the audience becomes your personality. So you want to try to be natural, be yourself, but be the best version of yourself that you want others to see when you present in the webinar environment. But being authentic means being passionate, not simply showing passion. Be enthusiastic, don't just show enthusiasm. Sincerity and honesty will matter. It will come through and be detected by the audience. There's certain body language that might still be relevant if you're on camera. Be present as you would be in person. Dress appropriately, style yourself appropriately, groom yourself appropriately, depending on what field of view you have in the camera. And this is another deliberate decision. Should you have your head only? That might not be appropriate for some webinars because some software will make you full size in the viewer's screen when you're talking. And a very large head covering the video screen is usually not comfortable for the audience. You might go head and shoulders. Or you might pan back even further to show your whole torso or even your full body. Depending on what you include in the field of view, be aware that everything around you is also part of the vision of what the audience is thinking about. It will also change the amount of body language that you need to use. The more of your body is visible, the more of that part of your body needs to be part of the message and the way in which you convey your energy, your character, your personality. But if you are using a narrow field of view, perhaps head and shoulders, avoid face touching if you can. Try to limit the scratching, etc., that you might need to do it around your face. Blow your nose first so that as much as possible, it's just your head and shoulders in the view. Now let's talk a little about the delivery during a live webinar. And here the size of the audience you have will matter a great deal. For small groups, you know, perhaps a few dozen, you might be able to do the webinar alone. But above that, or if you have a very interactive audience, you may need assistance. But webinars are different from an online meeting. And some software will let you do it either way. You need to make a decision as to which is appropriate. Meeting lets others transmit voice and video. It's co-participatory. The individuals can join the meeting and present in the meeting to each other or even back to us. In webinar mode, typically that means that only the presenter is presenting and able to broadcast and transmit. The audience is usually limited to text-based feedback, 
typing their questions and answers, typing their comments. They don't get to be a presenter at any point. So meetings are for sharing information, for the exchange from many to many. Webinars are broadcasts, a one-to-many relationship. Now, if you have a large number of people, you know, 50 plus, we may need other assistants, other people helping to deal with things like Q&A. Your audience members may be typing their questions consistently throughout the presentation. A presenter needs to focus on what they're saying now and what they're going to say next. But someone else manning that Q&A can use perhaps cut-and-paste answers for pre-expected questions. Or they can deal with mundane and simple questions that might have already been covered by the presenter or might be outside of what the presenter is talking about. If you have a few hundred people, you might need a larger team to handle with the questions and answers. You might need someone else tracking the nature of the conversation between the different audience members, detecting and picking out currents and themes and trends in what they're talking about to bring that back into perhaps a more dedicated Q&A moment that the presenter will handle where they talk about some of the things being discussed. These decisions will depend on the content, it'll depend on the audience, their familiarity with that content and how many questions you get. But we need to address this. Live webinars are a multi-channel interaction. You get continuous interaction unlike a silent live audience. And this is why we need the team. In a live audience, people will just sit there quietly. But in a live webinar, they have an option to interact with what they see as the more complete entity of the presentation team. So we need to be able to address that and meet that requirement. Some webinar software caps at around 1,000 people. We definitely need a team for that. But it's worth it. If you have 1,000 people live in a webinar, the amount of leverage you can get means that it's worth having three, four, five, however many people that you might need for that hour or so or 20 minutes or whatever it is to deliver the webinar. This raises the point of the MC, the Master of Ceremonies. This is a separate voice. This is a voice and an identity that handles things like the administration needs and it separates the mechanics of participating in the webinar from the delivery of knowledge and understanding that is done by the presenter. But it also empowers and elevates that expert or that important speaker. By taking the admin tasks away from that presenter, it makes their content or what they say a little more special. It also lets the speakers themselves focus on their message and their content. Now, in other ways, most of the same things that would apply in a public speaking environment also apply here. We need to practice what we do. We need to know our content. We need to be human, be relaxed, be ourselves, follow a flow of the message. These presentation elements are much the same. But the time spent and the time allocated to a webinar by the audience is a little different. People come in person for a live presentation, usually for many things. Due to the sunk cost in time that it takes to go somewhere, turn up, sit on a chair, be present for a period of time. They usually need more from that activity and that effort to meet their ROI requirements. But online, it's a lot more casual. They can log in for a few moments, a number of minutes, maybe an hour, and that's all the time investment they need to make. So they are more likely to come for one thing or a few things, and they will expect exactly that, and often only that. So we need to maintain focus on what it is that we're delivering What expectations have we set for this webinar? And we make sure we meet that expectation. Because we don't have a lot of control over their attention span. Online, it's easier to be distracted for even to walk away or log off, perhaps. So we need to earn their attention, not simply expect it, as we would in a live presentation, or demand it, as we might if we were in person as perhaps their teacher or their boss. We need to stay relevant to what they're looking for and focused on it. We also need to limit our own distractions and our own background noise. Webinars that are highly leveraged are not a casual work-from-home meeting. We need to put some effort in to make sure that we are protecting our message from interruptions and disturbances. But if it does happen, don't panic. Flow around the problem. Don't over-acknowledge it or respond to it too much. And if necessary, perhaps have some help locally, physically, to help deal with unexpected sudden background noises. 
But keep track of time. Time yourself in a trial so that you know how to pace what you're going to deliver. Count it down in five-minute intervals of what's going to happen in each five minutes. Know on a schedule where you should be up to at each five-minute interval. Have these notes visible if necessary on your desk in front of you. Know what's next at every point. Make sure you don't overrun the clock. There's really no excuse for overrunning the clock in a live webinar because we have a clock visible to us at all times. Alter our pace if necessary. If we're running a bit slow, speed it up. If we're going too fast, slow it down. You might have already noticed that I'm actually speaking quicker in this lecture than I will have in several others. This is because this particular lecture has a lot of content I need to get through and I still want to try and keep it to under 20 minutes. There's other things we can use to interact with the audience and get them engaged, such as polls and surveys. But keep these simple. A single multiple choice question is usually a good option. Keep the answers brief. Don't require them a great deal of thinking or a lot of reading for them to get through it. Make the options generally valid so that it's easy for someone to pick an option that's likely to be meaningful for them. That if we do that, share the results with the audience. Discuss them. Make that relevant. Don't just keep it secret for us and hide the answers. Share them and talk about them. That will encourage them and make them feel rewarded for participating in it. When we're delivering, we might use micro-pauses, not big dramatic pauses. If we're standing in front of a person, they can see that we're in the midst of still continuing. We might still be able to do this if we have video, but if we're audio only, then we need to have even smaller pauses so that the audience doesn't think that we've simply stopped talking. We can use rhetorical questions, things that make the audience ponder or wonder. And in those few moments, that's the time when you quickly have a sip of your drink. But do have a drink, because if you're talking for long periods, you will suddenly get dry. You also might want to have question time inserted at different stages in the presentation. If it's a long webinar, after each major idea change, you might want to have a brief question and answer discussion then, which keeps the questions and their answers relevant to the idea that's just been presented. But control this. Limit the question count. You might decide that you're going to take five questions. Have a question jockey managing that for you. Someone who's been collecting the relevant and useful questions and can point out the best five for you to answer. And limit your answer time. Don't let yourself waffle on too long with complicated answers. Lastly, record it all. Edit the start and end of the recording if you need to, and we'll talk more about that in the next lecture that we cover. But review it for yourself. Learn from it. Have a debrief with the team members that were present and there. Decide what you can learn from it, because there are always lessons to be found. We can always do better with our webinars, and it's worth it. Delivering good webinars is a skill more than an art. We can learn it, and we can learn it well. And the leveraged advantage of having that skill can be very powerful. Perhaps like no other form of presentation. A good live stage presentation can dramatically change that audience. A good webinar can change the world. This is the end of Lecture 7C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 7D of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore, and this discussion examines some of the specifics relating to recording a video presentation rather than doing it live. Now, we have already covered live digital presentations, the classical webinar, and nearly all of that applies when you're doing a recording of a digital presentation, with a few exceptions that we're about to go through. So this is about those digital video pieces that are not live, or perhaps they were, but they're now merely recordings. Now, we said in the live webinar discussion that we have to earn the audience's attention. We know that they can leave at any point during that webinar. But we are live. They know that in that moment, we are there in person. And our presence in that moment creates some small social pressure on them to stay. We're staying, so maybe they should too. Now, this pressure might be very small, but it's there. Except on a recording, it's not. The only thing that we have to continue their engagement is the message itself. 
The one advantage we now have with a recording is we can control the packaging. And we do that with the editing process. This means that the fundamental, most important outcome or purpose of the editing process is to maintain the audience's attention as long as possible during the video. So when we are preparing for a recording, all of the technical factors still apply. The details regarding the audio, the camera, the environment, the positioning, where we are in front of the camera, the lighting, etc. All of this works pretty much the same. But when we're talking about post-production editing, there's things we can then take away or things we can add to our presentation. One of the most obvious and most common these days, you might have noticed a lot of YouTube videos where the presenter seems to be jumping between statements. You can see from the sudden jumps in their body positioning that things have been cut out of that conversation. It's not a seamless, continuous take. This can be from editing out some of the gaps and some of the pauses, or from editing out those clear departures from the script or from the message. Those relaxed moments where you stop and have a drink, but you don't really want that in the video. It can also be from combining multiple takes, where the message has been recorded more than once and pieces, perhaps from different takes, have been spliced together. But even a single take can be shortened to tighten the gaps between the things that we say. Now this can be overdone. We can create a crammed and tight delivery that's too fast and too full to be followed. We're literally taking out the pauses that we already know have some value. But it does let us benefit from the fact that with this editing process, each moment we have in front of the camera is not precious. We can take our time in front of the camera. We can let our minds wander, collect our thoughts, and then come back into the presentation. Even very small pieces of success from a long rambling delivery can still be harnessed and leveraged via the editing process. But there is a price for this editing phenomenon because the editing process can take even longer than the delivery and the recording took, perhaps much longer, as in several times longer. But when we splice all these together, we get a scene full of jump cuts. This can be disconcerting for the audience. It can be unnatural, and you would never really do it in an entertainment piece, television or film. But for presentations where we want to absolutely minimise the wastage of time for the audience, it can be an effective tool. But we can also avoid the sensation of jump cuts by splicing in what's called the B-roll. Now, in most cases, in a video presentation, your B-roll is actually the slide presentation. So, by editing through the process, we take the talking head off-screen and we put the slide deck alone as the only visual. And then we can effectively have lots of audio cuts where the audience has no idea that these aren't a seamless discussion in one take. But then when we have a long, clean line that's delivered, we put the talking head back in and we let them deliver that cleanly and completely. This kind of splicing in and out the B-roll helps us make sure that we're not having too many jump cuts that can make it feel too disjointed and too unnatural. But editing can also let us rework the message. We can take out repeated statements. We can even take out fillers or filler words, the ums and ahs. But one of the challenges with splicing in multiple takes is not just the jump cuts, but we can damage the strategic flow, the strategic cadence of how the rhythm of the speech and the message is delivered. So if we break up our presentation into, say, 10 parts, and then we say each one of those parts separately, then our rhythm is essentially a small component of rhythm or cadence that we then repeat 10 times. Because if our mind is thinking we're going to start this piece of the presentation, 
we will begin that piece as if it's the beginning. Whereas, in fact, it's probably not. It's somewhere in the midst of what should be a much larger conversational strategic rhythm. So we want to avoid having this staccato rhythm that's lacking this conversational flow. Now, it's possible for us to review what's just gone before and then pick up what we're saying to enter the flow. But this can be quite difficult to do. What normally happens is that each take is done from start to finish. And if we bumble or fluff something along the way, we just carry on. We pick up where we left off and carry on. We can edit that little bit out later. But we make sure that we're making clear statements and clear points with a rhythm. We become more aware of the conversational cadence that we need to maintain from start to finish of each point that we make. Then later, if we have multiple takes, we can review them point by point and splice them into the best version of that statement. But usually we want to take an entire point or an entire statement or an entire section of the message within one take and use it. This could need to have the background, the camera angle, and all of the other factors to remain constant. If we want continuity, then we make sure that as little as possible changes. Yes, the person's head might suddenly jump to another position, and most of us have seen that happen in YouTube videos. Or we can go with the two-angle method, even using a single camera. So we take one take from a particular camera angle, and then move the camera somewhere else, for the second take. If we do this, we don't want to be cutting between those two different camera angles too fast. We would switch between camera angles only when we're changing sections or changing ideas or changing with clear delineated differences in the message that we're giving. We don't want to break things up into two small components. We don't jump cut mid-sentence or even mid-point if it's avoidable. But it's not just editing out those obvious fluffs and mistakes that really don't belong in the video. We can also trim the fat out of our message. Sometimes when we prepare our message for a video recording, well, we typically begin with writing it. And what we write doesn't always translate exactly into a verbal delivery. When we verbalize, we often use different language than what we would have put in writing. Verbalizing is a natural way to deliver the message. More than simply reading a script, which can sound very wooden and very strict. This is why things like teleprompting can often just use points that are prompts that give the presenter a reminder of what they need to talk about, rather than a script word for word that they have to read from. But doing this verbalizing usually extends the time. Most of the time, we're a little more verbose when we just verbalize something. And this can actually be a reason to have a script that allows us to control the timing of it more effectively. So if we do use the verbose method, we need to be more aware of the time. But editing can help solve that problem by cutting out bits, maybe even pieces of the message that we later decide don't need to be there. Now, apart from all these sorts of things that we can edit out, obviously there's also some things we can add in. And one of the obvious and oldest ideas is adding music. But with most professional presentations, this is a little bit questionable. Music will compete with voice, and we never usually want music and voice to overlap. We might have some music in an introduction, or we might have some music on exit. But... We need to be careful about the music that's selected. Music generates emotion. And the primary role of adding music is to try to signal to the audience that we're wanting them to be in a certain emotional state. But we do need to be careful because this can very easily be overdone. It can also seem artificial and over-accentuated. More likely, what we could be adding is slides that are advancing that have been exported into a video format, combined with the face of the presenter and their audio. We might have a video reel of the presenter speaking and them on camera, along with the video component 
of the presentation that is being advanced in the right time frame. We might have both of these on the screen, one of them inset with a little window, or we might be swapping between the two. Some software will actually put this together for you as you record the presentation. It will capture the video and insert that in a box. This would often be the same throughout if you're using the software to do that for you. But if you're using a post-production editing process, you can swap the focus between sometimes being just the slides, sometimes being just the person, and sometimes having both. By the end of the editing process, you want to have a complete package that gives the message. The role of the editing is to keep it interesting to hold attention throughout. If it does nothing more than that, the editing has still been highly successful. However, all of this can become infinitely more complicated than what we've covered here. So if the resources are available and the result is important enough, it's usually worth getting some expert help in making this as good as it can be. For example, if cutting your own videos feels about as awkward as cutting your own hair, then perhaps we should get some help and we'll be glad we did. This is the end of Lecture 7D.